Hello, and welcome to this episode of the ASIN podcast series. I'm your host, Kristen Hisong, and this month we discuss multicultural nationalism with Professor Taurik Modud, Professor of Sociology, Politics, and Public Policy, and the Director of the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Citizenship at the University of Bristol. The following conversation with Professor Modud took place during ASIN's 28th Annual Conference on the Theme of New Nationalism. Professor Modu's paper, A New Nationalism, Immigration, Integration, and Multicultural Nationalism, was the topic of a conference workshop and the focus of today's chat. With more than 25 years of work devoted to multiculturalism, Professor Modud has a prolific body of work in public engagements within and beyond academia. In this workshop, he takes concepts of multiculturalism and proposes it as a nationalism of the center-left, labeling it multicultural nationalism or multicultural transnationalism. He argues that in the modern era, every citizenship has taken place with a nation-state, but that a republic is never culturally neutral. He discusses national identity as the emotional, cultural accompaniment to citizenship, and we discuss this dialogical nature. He gives an optimistic message to craft the overarching canopy of national identity. We shouldn't assume that we have a national identity that fits us. Rather, we make it fit and reflect who we are. We need to emphasize what we have in common, and what we have in common is something that we make together. Professor Modud, thanks for taking the time to be here with us today. If we could start out just by having you introduce the focus of your workshop here as it relates to the conference theme of new nationalism. So in my um, blurb for my workshop, um, I say, well, uh, the conference theme is a new nationalism, but arguably most of the conference is about old nationalisms. but I want to present a new one. Obviously, that's a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek, but there is, I think, a a serious point behind it as well. Um, Nationalism, like any ism, of course, changes from context to context, time to time. Um, I take that for granted, and the versions that we have at the moment um, are perhaps, you know, more connected to uh, immigration than say some of the ones in the past which were more cons- connected to um, a feeling of humiliation or resentment after say a military defeat mm. as in the case of say Nazi Germany and so on. So of course contexts vary but nevertheless it seemed to me that the focus of the uh, conference was very largely on right-wing um, nostalgic or monocultural or majoritarian uh, nationalisms and in fact I think most people uh, when they think about nationalism do think of exactly those things but actually um, we ought to have a wider category of, of nationalism or if we don't want to call it nationalism we have to find another suitable term um, because we mustn't assume that there, are, uh, that nationalism is a right-wing category, mm. either in general or in the contemporary moment. And so what I say uh, in relation to my own uh, workshop is that actually there is a kind of nationalism. It's not quite so clearly flagged up um, 
theoretically or even politically, um, but it, you know, it may grow, which we sometimes call um, progressive patriotism mm -hmm. or liberal nationalism. The two things aren't exactly the same, but liberal nationalism is a term that uh, people in political theory are likely to use, you know, identified with people like, um, say, David Miller or Will mm -hmm. Kimlicker, and perhaps going back to John Stuart Mill. Um, and so these are nationalisms of the centre-left. And I want to offer a nationalism of the centre-left, just mm -hmm. as a kind of idea. Um, and I call that multicultural nationalism, which actually is really just what, <clears throat> for 25 years that I've been working on it, I've been calling multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. um, and before, I used to emphasise the importance of national identity. Mm -hmm. Because while I do strongly think that um, identities are important, uh, normatively important and therefore politically important, and that a uh, polity, uh, what we might call, you know, a, a republic, is never culturally neutral between between mm. identities, and therefore has to include minority identities as well as those identities that are more or less included because they're taken for granted. Mm -hmm. So, um, obviously, you know, that takes us straight into multiculturalism the importance of um, respecting and accommodating minority cultures, minority identities, minority uh, religions. I've always argued and very much using the British historical experience or contemporary experience that multiculturalism is not possible without um, a strong citizenship because the citizenship mm -hmm. anchors us normatively and politically, anchors us in what our common rights are and the claims that we can make against each other, as well as our common concerns and things that we do together to be something together, mm -hmm. you know, to be American, to be French, to be British. But I focused more on the British. And therefore, and I used to call that the um, cultivation of national identity, which isn't the same thing as citizenship, but in some ways it's the kind of symbolic uh, cultural accompaniment of citizenship. So most citizenships in the modern world, you know, if we forget about things like ancient Rome and uh, the Greek polis and so on, uh, the citizenships of the modern world have actually all been accompanied by nation states. You know, you could say, well, the European Union is an example of something that's moving beyond that because we now have a European citizenship. Um, but actually, it's still quite um, limited relative to France, German, um, Spanish citizenship and so on. And so I've always thought of national identity as the uh, emotional cultural accompaniment to citizenship because to get a people 
to think of themselves as a people and to care about each other and have a sense of uh, cooperative belonging. Um, you do need something emotional and, in fact, imaginative. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to just have things like, you know, passports and the franchise mm -hmm. and the rule of law and constitutional processes and so on. That's, <coughs> that's not enough. That's essential because, obviously, that is part of the skeletal structure of what we mean by citizenship. Um, but it's not enough by itself. And so, right from the beginning of the period that I've worked on nationalism, which, you know, roughly around 25 years, I've thought of um, multiculturalism and national identity as going together. And I sometimes call that multicultural citizenship, and I sometimes have called that multicultural Britishness. In the last couple of years, I've started calling it multicultural transnationalism, even though the content hasn't really changed at all, but here I'm clearly trying to, to do something by changing the vocabulary. So what am I trying to do? <laughs> I suppose I'm trying to signal to people, whether they are pro or, or anti-multiculturalism, the point that I've been making all along, which is that we need uh, multiculturalism to also be part of... Uh, a political culture where we have a sense of what we have in common. Multiculturalism mm -hmm. can't just be about difference. That would mm -hmm. be impossible. We'd just fall apart. So um, it has to be uh, both. And I guess because nationalism is now in the air, I think, well, I may as well use that term and it helps me, as I say, both against what we might call uh, friends and foes of multiculturalism, to use this term, multicultural nationalism. So, first, in relation to its friends. I think a lot of friends of multiculturalism, people that we, broadly speaking, might call pro-diversity people, mm. um, I think they have come to accept an idea of uh, multiculturalism which goes well beyond and in some ways in a different direction to what I've been arguing for and what you know in the last couple of minutes I've been describing as a kind of multicultural Britishness because an idea has grown up especially in Europe but not only that if you're pro-diversity then there's something wrong with being proud of your country or of valuing your national identity or of um, having immigration controls. That immigration controls are anti-multiculturalism as well as just generally being oppressive and um, you know various other critiques, but that they, that they that they don't sit well with multiculturalism. But actually, they do. Um, if we look at um, both in theory and practice multiculturalism, the countries that have pioneered multiculturalism, like Canada, mm -hmm. Australia. Um, the United States, so that's a slightly different kind of case, 
to uh, Canada and Australia, and I'd, I'd say Britain, for instance, um, they've all had immigration control in the very same moment that they've had the advocacy and the promotion of multiculturalism. So that's my point to my um, wider multiculturalist constituency. Look, don't lose the nationalism and become too cosmopolitan. But I also have a message in the choice of the term multicultural nationalism. I also have a message for, if you like, the enemies of multiculturalism, people who are suspicious of multiculturalism, who say that multiculturalism is the problem. And my message to them is, I do share, not just understand, I actually share your concerns and anxieties uh, in the present moment that our national identities are being devalued. Whatever the reasons might be, whether it's globalization or the European Union or lots of liberal cosmopolitanisms disrespecting the nation state, whatever it is, I, in this moment of time there is that um, anxiety and I understand and as I say share it but the way of handling it is not to have a exclusivist monocultural majoritarian nationalism so let's think together carefully and generously about the kind of country we are and we want to be and want to be proud of but it has got to be a multiculturalist country because otherwise we're going to not have a united country. We're going to have a divided and a hierarchized society. So that's how I've come to talk about multicultural nationalism as a way of signaling something both to the people on the right and to people, if you like, who may be more left multiculturalist than myself. Can you clarify a bit what you mentioned about the relationship between citizenship and the nation-state? You said multiculturalism requires a strong citizenship, and citizenship requires a nation-state? Okay. I said in the modern world, unlike, say, ancient Rome or ancient Athens, okay. citizenship has usually taken place hmm. within a nation-state and within hmm. a okay. um, embrace of a certain kind of national public culture. That, that was my point. Okay. And I was just saying, yes, you could say that something like the European Union is an attempt to get beyond that. Mm. And perhaps they will get beyond that, but they clearly haven't got beyond it at the moment. We, we see that um, someone who's as enthusiastic about uh, a more integrated federal Europe as uh, Emmanuel Macron I mean, he's surrounding himself with flying French flags and mm -hmm. all kinds of French tropes. Right. Um, of course, he sees France and Europe as very much tied up together, mm -hmm. um, if you like, in the way that I see multiculturalism and nationalism tied up together. And some people have described my kind of view as a kind of multiculturalism in one country. Because, you know, um, Stalin, I believe, was uh, described as standing for socialism in one country mm. when initially uh, Marxism-Leninism was understood to be an international 
-hmm. unity of workers across the world. And under Stalin, of course, he made Russia, even though it was you know, the Soviet Union, but he, he appealed to uh, Russian nationalism, especially, of course, when he had to fight against Hitler. He appealed to Russian nationalism to make his system work. And so some peop sometimes people have described that as socialism in one country. Mm -hmm. So, if you like, mine is a multiculturalism in one country, but to be quite honest, most of the political theorists of multiculturalists are in the same boat as myself in that respect. If you think about Will Kimlicker, Charles Taylor, Bhikkhu Parekh, they all see multiculturalism as tied up with um, a particular country. Mm -hmm. So different countries can be multiculturalist in, in different ways, but multiculturalism isn't itself seen as a international institutional arrangement. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, if you like, unlike cosmopolitanism mm -hmm. and unlike the construction of a kind of human rights discourse backed up by various NGOs as well as international courts and so on. So uh, multiculturalists, like the ones I've just mentioned, they're always appealing to this country, you know, whether this country is Canada or Australia or, or Britain, they're always appealing to, well, this is the people that we have to make multiculturalism work for. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that's just how multiculturalism has been. And it may be that a new younger generation wants to go beyond that, because I do notice um, in political theory, as well as in what you might call migration studies generally, which of course now is a very, very big field of study, that the underlying ethos is much more cosmopolitan and is much more um, humanitarian than it is um, state-based, nation-state-based. And I do want to offer something which is a, a feasible rallying point against the dangerous nationalisms. Mm -hmm. And we immediately think of, you know, Brexit and Trump, but even more dangerously, some of them on the continent, like the Front National and look, the ones in Italy, mm -hmm. let alone, um, you know, the AFD in Germany and Freedom Party is now in power, sharing power in Austria. So, I mean, there is a clear wave of right-wing nationalism mm -hmm. that is becoming stronger. Um, of course, I want to oppose it, as, you know, I know a lot of people want to oppose it, but I think those who want to oppose it with the kind of what I've just called a kind of one-world idealism will not be able to create a political movement that can win at the ballot box. They can create some kind of a political movement mm -hmm. of like-minded people, you know, through Facebook and through demonstrations and through some NGOs and so on. And they might even get half a million people. 
But to win an election in Britain, you have to get, you know, 13, 14, mm -hmm. 15 million people to, to side with you. And so I am trying to offer an idea, which of course is far from being anything like a, a full political manifesto or anything like that. And it's just, just particularly focused on, on issues about what we might call diversity integration, mm -hmm. ethno-religious integration. But in relation to that idea, which has become very central to our politics in a troubling way, um, I want to offer an idea that could command a majority. Mm -hmm. You know, a coalition could emerge around that, add together with, with, with other ideas, in the way that I think some of the younger idealistic people who um, are very moved by the suffering that they see in some poor countries, like in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, the, of course, the, uh, the devastation that we all know about in countries like Syria, also Afghanistan, Iraq, mm. um, and <coughs> therefore large-scale refugee movements mm -hmm. which initially were more or less in the neighboring countries but as we know um, now also um, have um, you know are to be found in continental Europe mm -hmm. and so on so I think that the movement that sees that as um, the big issue of our time and responds to that in a very idealistic way um, I mean I, I certainly understand it I, and I kind of I'm impressed by the moral courage but not by the political realism right I so that's how I feel when I read about multiculturalism I think, yes, this, this is what we need to do. And then my creativity and intellect makes me think, oh, but how? <laughs> um, and I guess that's the, maybe, and maybe that's not for this to say or for you to say, but how do you see it anytime, how do we make room for multiple stories in the national, I think you call it the cultural national what's the phrase you use for kind of the mainstream one like the cultural national um narrative the kind of majoritarian nationalism yeah, yeah. or monocultural nationalism so yeah. how do we make room for multicultural how do we yeah. make room for that plurality and presumably one whoever's in charge may not want to cede any of their power or influence. And two, what if there's something about Culture A's story that is at direct odds or denies some part of Culture B's story? How do we yeah. put them both in the picture? Okay, well, beginning with the issue about power and not ceding power, mm -hmm. um, When I was a young man, when I was a, um, a schoolboy and so on, there used to be this kind of story told 
the difference between Britain and some other countries, say above all France, <laughs> is that the ruling class, classes in Britain, knew when to give something up. Mm. And so they always tried to resist, but when they had to make a compromise and hand over some power or share some power, they did so. And so they shared power with, you know, the aristocrats shared powers with the bourgeoisie, the middle classes came to extend the franchise to include um, working class, men extended the franchise to include women, um, and then, you know, you can add uh, racial equality into that narrative and so on. So, and that's, if you like, a kind of Whig history. Um, <laughs> one of um, some degree of compromise but which challenges the idea that you just expressed a moment ago and which people do express and that is nobody gives up power willingly but they do that's that's what we've seen in british history yeah. they don't give it out of give it up out of the goodness of their heart that may be the case one needs some, you know, political opposition. Mm -hmm. One needs, you know, some rising economic power as through the Industrial Revolution or as through the organization of trade unions and so on. Mm -hmm. So, yes, some degree of power conflict and power relations is involved. But let's not say people don't give up power, meaning power never shifts or is never shared. Now, mm -hmm. Going back to this old-fashioned kind of Whig history versus its opposite, well, its opposite always was, of course, revolutionary France. There, the French aristocracy, on this narrative goes, were so inept that they lost their heads. They could have shared power, but they didn't. Instead, they had a bloody revolution. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that multiculturalism, British multiculturalism, actually... Um, has been evolving on the first model, on the kind of Wiggian model, and can continue to do so because obviously we have a, you know, far more to go. We haven't. It's not like we've come to the end of any road. Um, I think um, so many um, of our uh, institutions um, are becoming um, multi-ethnic, mm -hmm. like you know political parties. Um, obviously, we've got Sadiq Khan elected mayor of London with the, the largest personal mandate in, um, in Europe. Um, certainly outside things like, you know, the French presidential election anyway. Um, and we, we see um, ethnic diversity um, on the television, in our uh, popular culture, in um, universities. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that it's all uh, equally proportionate to the, you know, the demographic base. Um, on the whole, it isn't. Um, though all the trends are in that direction. So again, this is a, a little bit like is the glass half empty or the glass half full? 
So I'm usually arguing with people who say the glass is half empty because they say, well, you know, if we really had any racial equality in the university, we'd have X percentage of black and Asian professors. But actually, we've got X minus something, perhaps even, you know, only half of what X is. Therefore, we can't have racial equality. But I say, well, okay, don't just look at a, a snapshot, the picture collected when the data was collected, but look at it over a period of time at different data points. And what's the trend? What's the story that we tell across the different points? Mm -hmm. And I think we can be more positive when we see it like that, but not positive in the sense of just be complacent because all these things have been achieved through pressure, through activism, through making the case, through appealing to um, people's uh, moral and political sense of what ought to be. Mm. All peoples, I don't just mean minority peoples, all peoples. Um, so I, I'm not, I don't feel so defeatist. It's not that I think we're going to get to um, some kind of utopia tomorrow or even the day after tomorrow. But I don't think we have to talk about as if, well, things never change. Mm. People don't give up power. Therefore, we're kind of stuck here forever. Mm. My fear is that groups, I think one, I'm not well versed enough to know whose name, but you probably do. One critique of multiculturalism is that it, we get lots of celebration of the many cultures that make up Britain or wherever, but that they stay quite, they're not embracing each other and building a new one together. They're kind of stovetopped yeah. or, or separated into different communities. Um, so, okay, so now I'm on the power shifts and things change. Yeah boat how what's the tool to move from celebrating the many cultures because maybe i watch that program on tv and i listen to this kind of music but that doesn't mean that that's the people with whom i'm interacting or the culture that i'm know about to celebrate and the only answer i can think of is education making that part of the story we tell ourselves about our past and our present but but how do we how do we go from the acknowledging our fellow citizens' cultures to crafting the new shared multicultural heritage together? Yeah. So if I understand you um, rightly, Kristin, um, so you asked me about well, what if there are as it were power blockages? What if people mm -hmm. in power just ignore you? Mm -hmm. Then. We we're talking about um, increasing diversity in different sectors of society and mm -hmm. of course at higher levels, occupational levels of society, people in power and so on. So that was more like about equal representations. Mm -hmm. So now if I understand you rightly, you're saying, how can we come to have a sense of peoplehood through shared cultures and activities as opposed to uh, a separate sense of set of silos mm -hmm. um, or what's sometimes called parallel communities or parallel yeah. lives. 
I guess I'm seeing it just to clarify if if this if the state says British culture is A, B, and C. To be British, it's A, B, and C. Do we want communities A, B, and C to say, I feel represented in the state. I see myself in the state. I see A, and B sees B, and C feels C, and they all feel British. Or do we want community A to see themselves in as being a part of all three of those components? I see. Um, well, the first thing I would say is um, it's not just about the British state saying whatever. Mm. Um, the British state does need to exercise forms of recognition. I very strongly believe in, mm. in that. Um, and not just the British state. In fact, actually, I think a lot of the work has to be done in a much more um, diffuse and dispersed way across society and through all the different kinds of institutions across civil society, including including universities. Um, but I think that um, my emphasis on national identity is exactly this thing about sharing an identity, because obviously I think identities are important. Mm -hmm. And I think that the majority group has a political uh, duty to accommodate minority identities. But I don't just believe in um, kind of discrete accommodation because I said we can't just emphasize difference, we have to emphasize what we have in common. Mm -hmm. And what we have in common, of course, is not static, it's something we make. So um, I evoke the idea of remaking national identity quite a lot. So traditionally, nationalists have talked about nation building. I talk about remaking the nation because I assume to some extent we already have that. Um, it's not a finished project, but it's not a project that hasn't started. Um, and I say we shouldn't think that we already have a national identity that fits us. We have to remake it so that it does fit us and we do this in a dialogical way. We certainly don't just expect the state to do it. So uh, no multiculturalist wants top-down identity making mm -hmm. by the state. There has to be um, voices and activities and political organization from below and if you like from the middle which is perhaps uh, a certain amount of political realism depending where one thinks the below is uh, or at least the bottom is mm -hmm. um, so I I think what you're now trying to get at is exactly what I mean by coming to have a sense of multicultural Britishness mm -hmm. not just oh, I'm Pakistani, they're Jewish, they're Indian, they're white uh, English, and we all coexist under a larger canopy. Mm -hmm. But know that we make our society, we make Britain something that reflects us in some way, that we can see ourselves in because it's something that we all want to belong to, 
and therefore we belong to what one might call more specific identities and more uh, capacious identities. And so Britishness has to be one of our capacious identities. Um, that's exactly why I've always emphasized that citizenship uh, needs national identity because citizenship by itself can end up being very dry um, set of rules, laws to protect people, anti-discrimination and so on. No, we have to have a sense that we are together uh, and that does mean to some extent um, identity creation and therefore if you like shared culture creation mm -hmm. so it's Britishness in motion but it won't start from nowhere and it'll start from exactly where we are so where we'll end up will not be so radically different from where we are now depends how far forward you go because if you think about it how different Britain is today from what it was a hundred years ago but perhaps it's not so different to how Britain was 50 years ago relative to how it was 100 years ago. So that's, that's what I mean when I say that um, the future will be different and should be different if multiculturalism is at all successful, but it won't be so different in the sense that we just completely remake, redraw everything because mm -hmm. we have to go from where we are now um, and we're all always in motion. Now, switching gears a bit, I wanted to make sure that we had time to speak a bit about Professor Modud's career and his process. How do you, author of many books and articles and amazing career, how do you sit down? What's the process like to have from having an idea to researching it to writing it? That should take five minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know how typical my way of working is, but I would say that there are certain uh, elements which are which have m made my mode of working and therefore my career, and of course it has been a, a, a very well rewarded career. Um, so one of them is that I am very committed to public engagement. Mm. So I am not uh, any political issue that's just up in the air. I mean, no, but the ones that relate to my own thinking and my own research, I'm very willing to, you know, to approach journalists, to go on television or nowadays, you know, to write a blog and so on on that. And moreover, um, I'm quite lucky in that I've always um, written a style to um, make things accessible to as many people as possible. I don't know why anyone would think any other style is mm -hmm. to be preferred. But yes, some people say, oh, well, what I have to say is very complex. I have to use complex language, and there are only 20 people in the world that can understand it. Well, so be it. I feel that's not good enough for myself. What I want to say, I want hundreds and thousands of people to understand it. And actually, the simplific simple language, meaning, you know, 
clarity is a way of understanding myself. So that's one important element of how I've, I've worked and so on. Another important element is that I've worked in research teams, usually teams that I've led, um, which means that I'm usually working with younger or you know more junior people like postdocs, people mm -hmm. I employ as RAs and so on. And I'm very lucky. I've formed um, some very good working relationships and personal friendships with people half my age or a lot younger than that. And we have authored a lot of work together well, well beyond the end of the project for which they were employed to work with me. Mm. And, and these relationships continue and so on. And so a lot of my work is co-authored, which means, you know, you can do lots of publications because you're not the only one writing while you're mm -hmm. working on this, someone else is doing that and someone else is doing that and, and so on. So obviously you can multiply your publications by a number. Mm -hmm. um, and as I say, it's very good to have those relationships. I'm, I often test out my thinking, you know, my first drafts and things on these kinds of colleagues that I've just mentioned, rather than what you might say, my senior peers. Of course, I do have some uh, senior peers who I'm in regularly in touch with, and we exchange drafts and so on. But you know, they've got far busier schedules and so on, and as indeed I have. And so, for one reason or another, it's much better um, to have done it the way I've just described. A third element I would mention is, and this is a, a real, real privilege as well, is that I get an enormous number of invitations to present my work um, all over the world and, you know, with all expenses paid and so on. In fact, I've never s sat down to count, but when I have tried to kind of count what it is, say, in a, in a year, it's not less than 50, but of mm. course I can't possibly do 50, so I just, I'm very lucky to just choose the ones I want to do. Mm. So usually a number between 10 and 15. Um, but I can't possibly write 10 or 15 new papers mm. um, every year, on and on and on. Um, and as you know, once you do a conference paper, people then say, oh, we'd like to do an edited book or a special mm -hmm. issue for a journal. Will you contribute? And so on. So that has meant that I do write a lot and I do publish a lot, but I have to do, if you like, quite a lot of recycling or reproduction. And I try to do it as transparently as possible, namely, you know, with a, an acknowledgement in the first footnote saying this is a... A slightly modified version of something published somewhere else and obviously I, I tell the conference organizers and the book editors that well in advance and say if that's what you want fine if you want something else I'm afraid I can't oblige mm -hmm. so if I take up all those elements that I've mentioned the focus on public engagement and clear writing um, lots of co-authorship especially with younger authors um, and um, proliferation of publications, but quite a lot of them are not so different from each other. Um, 
but nevertheless I find it very helpful to it just gives me a much greater presence mm -hmm. so even if I'm probably writing no more new stuff than anyone else per year let's say I don't know perhaps five or six new pieces a year um, I may be publishing 20 pieces a year mm -hmm. simply because of the the repackaging um, and the co-authoring and so on. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much for letting this be one of the 15 maybe this year <laughs> engagements that you do. I really appreciate it.